The following podcast contains explicit language and movie spoilers. You've been warned. No, seriously, there, there's spoilers and, and foul language. Yeah. Welcome to $20 Ticket, where we tell you how much we would pay to watch Steve Jobs. Uh, my name is Kerwin, and joining me today is Jason. What up, Jason? Not much. How about you? I'm good, man. What are you drinking today? It's a Stone Buena Visa. All right. Also with us is Mugga. What up, Mugs? What up? What are you drinking today? I got a Bud Light Seltzer. And uh, that's it. It's just us three, the yeah. OGs. Yeah. So uh, last time we did one by ourselves was what? Um, what, Jay and Silent Bob, I think? I think there was. Yeah, that one, been, yeah. yeah. So like exactly a year ago almost. So Damn. Yeah. No guests today, just us. So today we are talking about uh, Steve Jobs, released October 9th, 2015. Stars Michael Fassbender with uh, Kate Winslet, Seth Rogen, Catherine Watterson, Michael Stolberg. Stolberg? Stolberg? I think that's how you say that, yeah. All right. And Jeff Daniels is directed by Danny Boyle and written by Aaron Sorkin, and it's uh, distributed by Universal Pictures. Uh, so before we get into behind the scenes, Mugga hit us with the financials. All right. So again, we're talking about Steve Jobs, not Jobs, right? Which I'll do the comparison of that but uh, this movie um, did not do very well it did make some money um, it had a budget of 30 million um, but domestically it only brought in 18 million um, internationally it brought in 17 um, so that's a little over f- uh, 4 million in profit um, it did not even come in the top 10 it's opening weekend it came in at number 16 which is interesting huh um, uh, looking at some of those ones that were in uh, in theaters that weekend, uh, The Martian was still in, and that was at number one at eight weeks. And then I'm noticing Black Mass, but other than that, a lot of movies I really don't know of. I mean, there's Hotel Transylvania too, but I didn't watch that. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it did not do very well. And then I wanted to bring up that according to IMDb, uh, due to disappointing box office performances, the movie was pulled from 2,000, a little over 2,000 theaters just after two weeks. Yeah. Wow. So it's weird. But it did get credit as far as the Academy and other awards and all that stuff. Uh, I did compare it to Jobs, which was Ashton Kutcher, and I think it was three years prior. Um, that one did a lot better on a budget of only $12 million. That actually brought in a little over $42 million combined with domestic and international. So it actually had more... Uh, actually had more success which is weird because I like this movie better than that one and we'll get into all that but yeah did you want to say something yeah because we talked about this with um, Olympus Has Fallen and how they wanted to beat the other president movie to the box office like do you think this box office was lower because we'd already gotten a Steve Jobs movie and I'm wondering and I'll get into that because they're two different movies even though you can kind of call them both a biopic, but you'll see why these are both different. Mm. And I'm wondering if that movie hindered people for going to see this one. Mm. And, I, and we'll get into all that too, because you'll see why they are com- tremendously different. But mm. but yeah, no, so it, it was not a success. Um, and they actually pulled it and, uh, after two weeks from a bunch of theaters. And But yeah, those are the financials. All right, Jason, uh, tell us what the people thought of this movie. So according to Rotten Tomatoes, uh, the critics, uh, 85% of them liked it. So pretty good. Uh, average rating of 7.66 out of 10 with 312 ratings, 266 fresh, 46 rotten. The audience, 73% of the audience, so slightly lower, gave it a 3.5 out of 5 or higher with an average rating of 3.68 with um, close to 43,000 ratings. So I think I side with the critics yeah. more. I mean, I'll be honest, I haven't seen Jobs, so I've only seen Steve Jobs. I was going to go over that too if you yeah. guys have seen that, but yeah. yeah. No, I haven't seen it, so I, I can't compare, but I mean, just talking about it just briefly, like just a thought is just, you, people were probably burnt out about it. Probably, like, yeah. yeah. Um, IMDb gave it a 7.2 out of 10 with uh, over 151,000 votes. Some of the demos, um, males under 18 gave it the highest rating of 7.8. 
And then females 30 to 44 gave it the lowest rating on average of 6.8, so almost a point disparity. So I thought that was interesting because the average, like I said, was 7.2. But yeah, that's the ratings. All right, so Mugga, take us behind the scenes. All right, so we kind of already touched on this, but this is um, the third movie that's actually made about Steve Jobs. Um, The one that's called Jobs was in 2013, starring Ashton Kutcher, but there was also one called Pirates of Silicon Valley in 1999. Have you guys heard of that one? Does that one show more about Bill Gates compared to Steve Jobs? I would imagine, because it's Pirates of Silicon Valley. I have not seen it. I was just going to wonder if you guys have. I think I've seen parts of that. I think it was more of a low-budget film, but I I, I remember seeing parts of it. So anyways, um, getting into this film, uh, this is obviously the third one and last in order. Um, So this film is based off Walter Isaacson's book, Steve Jobs. Um, Sony actually acquired the rights to this in 2011, and they immediately hired Aaron Sorkin to write the screenplay. Sorkin confirmed in 2012 of May that he was officially writing the screenplay along with Steve Wozniak, who is the co-founder of Apple with Steve Jobs, and he had him on help for his historical accuracy for the script, as well as uh, being basically a consultant for the script. His idea was to write three segments that took place over 16 years, so it's kind of what you're seeing. You have basically the launch of the Macintosh with next in the middle all the way to the iMac. And uh, Sorkin's vision was to not create your typical like biopic where it's about like his life, um, but three key parts, not only in his life, but in computers in general. That's the launches of all three of these things. Sorkin read Isaacson's book and discovered five people that Steve Jobs had conflicts with and decided to write a screenplay with those conflicts tied into these three launches. And so that's why you get um, the connections with Joanna Hoffman, which is like his work wife, um, Steve Wozniak, Andy Hertzfeld, uh, Chrisanne Brennan along with Lisa and then John Scully. And so that's why those are like the main characters of it. Um, Sorkin was actually able to interview all these people for this screenplay, which I thought was weird. Um, Hoffman, Andy Hertzfeld, even Lisa. But like I said before, not only was he interviewing Steve Wozniak, but he was able to assist him in the writing of it. This is all going on in 2012 um, and they started writing the screenplay. But like we talked about before, the other Steve Jobs movie um, actually was already starting to be in production. And I wanted to bring this up because it's a different type of movie. Like this is more of your biopic. So have either of you guys seen it? I think Jason, you already said you didn't. Yeah, I tried. It's not good to me, but I don't know. I tried. I, I have never seen it, but I was just looking it up right now. On Rotten Tomatoes, Jobs only got a 28% from the critics. And it's yeah. weird, but yeah. and so, and I'm wondering if you, when you're right, it deterred people from going to see this film, even though it, to me it's a completely different one. Mm-hmm. Um, that one is more of a biopic. I think it starts off at a young age, in college, and everything all the way up to when he died, you know? But this one is completely different. So getting back to the script, Sorkin has stated that much of the dialogue that you see is all fiction, which sucks. Like, we'll, we'll get into that. Um, But he wanted to use that to tell the story. Um, I did watch an interview where he stated most of the situations that you see actually happened. They just didn't happen on these days. So like he didn't get into it with like Chrisanne on launches with Lisa and all that stuff. The only thing that was actually true was the voice demo. I think he got into it with Hertzfeld Mm -hmm. and that actually happened. Like it wouldn't say hello and all that stuff went down. But that's kind of like a trash to me, which we'll get into. I mean, I love this movie, but they're kind of like they're Hollywooding the movie. You know what I mean? I mean, so I don't, I don't know, but that's why it's not really, I think a biopic. I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think for the sake of the format and the type of story you want to tell and the type of writing you want to have or moments or whatever, you kind of got to fudge with the history a a little bit, but I, I I didn't notice that. I was just kind of like, man, like this guy just cannot have like a regular product much. Like everybody has to bring their, it's like, it's like he said, it's just like, 
every time I launch a product, people get drunk and tell me how they really feel, and I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, like just have, hey, Chrisanne, you're not allowed to see him today. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? That's, that's, cut that out, you know what I mean? John Scully, we'll talk, just not today, <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, he ended up completing the script in uh, January of 2014, and the project itself began to create buzz, except, uh, especially when David Fincher was considered to direct the film. So he's done Fight Club, Seven, all that stuff. Um, he had actually selected Christian Bell right away to play the part of Steve Jobs, which I thought was interesting. Um, and I'll get into more of the casting a bit. I want to go through this. Um, Fincher ended up dropping out, though, due to contract issues. I did read that he wanted something on the lines of $10 million to direct this film, and the studio just couldn't meet it. So now, on a budget of what I say was, I think it was like close to 30-something. Yeah, I mean, $10 million. That's why I, I understand, you know. Um, so that's where you get Danny Boyle, who comes in and ends up directing it. Um, he's known for directing Transporting. Transporting, is that how you say it? Yeah. Trainspotting. Have you? Trainspotting, yeah. Have you seen that movie? Oh, yeah. Seen is it great? Time. I haven't seen it. That's good. Is it? Because they're yeah. saying that this is the only movie that he directed prior to him doing Steve Jobs. Wait, really? But Well, I looked on IMDb because I read that somewhere, and he's on a bunch of stuff, but I don't know if he was like the producer or the director or whatnot, so I don't I don't know. I was going to look into that. I don't know if you guys could do what we're doing this, but I know he did it before. Because isn't Trainspotting like 2000? It's very early. I think it was like... like two? This is like before Clone Wars, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So. And it's a very different movie than this. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like a Guy Ritchie movie. Yeah. Yeah. So following that, though, he, he's now directing. He has Christian Bale. Uh, sorry, no, Christian Bale was with Fincher. He ends up getting the part. Um, a lot of people were attached to this movie, but like I said, this is in 2014, and the reason why it's, I'm saying that year again, there was actually a Sony Pictures Entertainment hack during that year. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. And that, that relates to this. I had to look it up. It's when these people called Guardians of the Peace they hacked and leaked information about Sony Pictures. They released scripts, executive salaries, personal information, emails, and upcoming projects. They also demanded the removal of the interview, and I think that was the big deal, right? Because it was related to the interview to kill uh, Kim Jong-un, and that had Seth Rogen also in it, yeah. yeah. But anyways, because I'm saying that, they did hack information in regards to this movie, um, especially a lot of the casting of it, and it's kind of impressive of who was kind of attached to this movie of to be in it. Um, it revealed the casting demands and complications, which Sony ended up saying caused the script to go into turnaround. So, Kerwin, I think we had this on another movie one time. That's can you, you explain this to us? From what I'm getting on turnaround, the studio owns it. They wanted to make it, but now they're basically calling it dead. But other studios could then buy it. Is that kind of what turnaround is? I'm not completely sure, but I do remember us talking about this in a previous yeah. episode. But I would assume that if like there's no progress being made, it's just because kinda... of the demands, all that that happened. So this is what happened. Then Universal ended up buying it out, and that's why it's now with Universal. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. So yeah. So anyways, going back to the casting though, um, like I said, uh, it was going to be played by Christian Bale, but when Fincher left, so did um, uh, Christian Bale, and then they got Danny Boyle. And so he's the new director, and he was set to have Leonardo DiCaprio play Jobs. And I thought that would have been kind of cool, but he dropped out. I think he did accept, but dropped out because he wanted to do The Revenant, which I agree with, you know. He got an Oscar for it, you know. Yeah. Um, potential candidates for Jobs after that were Bradley Cooper, Ben Affleck, and Matt Damon. Which, think about it, though, like, when you went to the Oscars of this year, The Revenant was nominated, and obviously Leonardo DiCaprio won, but then Matt Damon um, also was in The Martian, which is out, and then he was nominated, Michael Fassbender, that I'll get into, but he was nominated for Best Actor, too. So it's kind of cool when you think about the connection there. Mm. Yeah, he obviously didn't win, but um, however, <laughs> they, <laughs> they didn't go with any of those guys. Guess who they ended up going with after that? Christian Bale. He was, he was signed on again for the second time. Yeah. Now, it's for a different studio. 
I looked and I could not find though why they chose or why he ended up again leaving the part. I think it was contract, but I could not figure out anything. I don't. There was no Batman at the time. I don't. I don't know what the reason was. This is was. 2014. This is the second time they hired him, and I believe it is after 2014. Yeah. What um, What was that movie he did with uh, Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence? It was like American the Hustle. Big Ameri- Short. American Hustle and Big Short. Okay. So and maybe, I'm wondering if maybe that's what it was. Yeah. It might have been. Yeah. Going into that, there was some other guys that were um, said to be like linked as a possibility. <laughs> One other than Tom Cruise and also Matthew McConaughey. I heard Aaron Sorkin um, really wanted Tom Cruise when he originally wrote this to play Steve Jobs. Um, but none of that ended up working out. And they eventually went to uh, um, to the Michael Fassbender and he ended up getting the part. So I was just reading this right now, I guess. It looks like Laureen Jobs, uh, Steve Jobs' um, w- um, widow, wife. Uh, contacted Bale and begged him not to play the role for Dead Husband. Oh, really? Wow. I don't know. It says that she called some of the actors telling them not to do it. Because I read something that Michael Fassbender ended up calling Christian Bale and said you would have been perfect for this role. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, interesting. But yeah, we we got Michael Fassbender. Um, But then we go on to his co-star, which is uh, Kate Winslet. She plays Joanna Hoffman. Um, I think this was originally offered to Jessica Chastain, which I'm so glad that did not work out because I think Kate wins and kills it. I think she just passed. I couldn't find out what reason. I'm assuming a lot of this is for contract issues. They couldn't pay the, these actors that they wanted, and I'm not sure. But Well, she was in um, The Martian and Interstellar. So maybe those movies. Oh, she was, yeah. yeah so. It was a good time for movies then, right around then. It seems like a good yeah. job for work. Yo, 2014 through yeah. like now. And yeah, like the movie. Marvel's going on too. Yeah, movies yeah. are hot, man. Um, but anyways, Wenslet heard about the role through a crew member on another movie she was working on called The Dressmaker. And I believe that girl was her actual makeup artist. And she really wanted to like get this part. So what she did is she had her husband go buy her a dark wig. She actually Googled what uh, um, Hoffman looked like and noticed her hair was different. So she got the wig. And I think that makeup artist kind of like dolled her up a little bit. And she took a photo and sent it to the producers. Yo, yeah, to try to get the role. Have you seen a picture of this lady? No. Uh, she looks just like her. And so I'm wondering, I mean, yeah. that, and so in the first act, because in the first act, I heard that's what she was aiming for. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. So um, Danny Boyle then met with her and basically offered the part. Um, I did hear things of talks of them getting Natalie Portman in the film. I couldn't confirm that it was Joanna. I'm assuming it was. They just said they were trying to get her as part of the film. And I also read that there were ties to Charlize Theron possibly playing Joanna. But I'm glad they went with the way they did and went with Kate Winslet. Because I thought, it's one of my treasures, but the chemistry between Fassbender and Winslet is really good. Mm -hmm. Um, She got the role and did actually spend a lot of time with Joanna Hoffman and really wanted to represent her as what she said as best as she could with her accent and everything. She said that uh, Hoffman had like a softest to her and she wanted to show this in the film. Mm. So anyways, but uh, Winslet and Fassbender worked together a lot and I'll go over how they did their um, pre-production meetings and all that stuff. But uh, I think it's great how they did it because I think you can definitely see the chemistry, which I kind of went over already, but especially in the first act, I thought those people and the way they were able to rehearse, it, it just, it all worked out in my opinion. All right. So those are your two main actors. You also have the other actors, um, one being Jeff Daniels, who plays John Scully. What do you guys think of his performance? Great. I think it's amazing. Um, The reason why 
I, I can't confirm this. I'm just guessing. Um, he worked with Sorkin on the newsroom. I didn't know Aaron Sorkin was a writer for the newsroom. And um, I'm wondering if that's why he got it, because there are ties to the newsroom and this movie. The actors had to read the newsroom scenes in order to get this movie. I don't think they were given the script itself. Does that make sense? It's kind of weird, right? And I was reading that, and I'll show you why that's a big thing, especially when it comes to Seth Rogen's character, which I'll just get into right now. Um, but before I do that, when I watched this movie, I started doing a little bit of research back when it came out, because I didn't see it in theaters. I swear that I read that Seth Rogen really wanted to be a part of this movie, and so he asked Aaron Sorkin, and Sorkin said, I'll give you the role if you stop smoking weed during this whole production. And he said, okay, I'll do that. I cannot find that anywhere. So I think that's a lie. I heard it on Howard Stern. You heard it? Uh-huh. Because then I'm, I'm looking into it, and basically when I'm looking at that, it was completely different. And where Seth Rogen was kind of like, I don't know if I even wanted this role. Because he, he, he got the call that they were interested in him playing Wozniak, and they asked if he could come audition. So he did. I think he read some of the newsroom, but I don't think he saw the vision of what the screenplay was trying to do. And I think he was thinking it would be like the Steve Jobs that we got from the Ashton Kutcher one because he was on the kind of comparing it like, Hey, I love Johnny Cash and I think Joaquin Phoenix is great as well as Ruth Wisman, but I still haven't seen Walk the Line. Some of the reasons like he just doesn't like that type of movie and how they get the truth like wrong. I, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how you guys feel about that. The only thing I remember hearing um, when he was talking about it was that he was terrified because of the amount of dialogue that he had to read. That was one of the main, I think, um, things like why he didn't want to smoke weed, not only because it's Aaron Sorkin. So did Aaron Sorkin ask him not to do it? I don't know if he asked him, but the way he said it when I heard the interview was he was like, hey, I'm choosing not to because okay. one, I don't want to do it in front of Aaron Sorkin because it's Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> yeah. Two is because I have so much freaking dialogue that I'm not going to fuck this up and I'm not going to you know, do all these retakes and reshoots because I'm fucking up because I'm, I'm wasted. You know yeah. what I, mean? I don't blame him. <laughs> yeah, No, I don't either. Yeah. I mean, I was like, okay, at least you're thinking about it. And I'll get into how much dialogue and how they had to prep for it. Um, but I think he pictured what I was kind of saying, the Kutcher movie, but he said he should have given Sorkin and Boyle more credit. And it turned out to be like the most amazing script these guys have all ever read. And I, I went over the newsroom. I'm wondering, is that why you think like these guys couldn't see though, because they weren't actually auditioning for the parts. They were just kind of, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering what the strategy is of doing. I mean, it's Aaron Sorkin writing, but why would they audition through the newsroom and not the actual thing? I don't know the reason. I think it's probably for, um, for the, uh, the style of, for that style of writing that Aaron Sorkin does. And we'll talk about this later in Trash and Treasure, of course, and you'll probably have yeah. more stuff, but like, it's very dense yeah. and very quick and snappy done in like long takes, the walk-in talks. Like there's, there's a lot going on that you have to practice for and memorize. And I think just, I think the newsroom is just practice. It's just like, hey, you know what? You're going to have to do this in this movie, so we're going to give you some very, very similar material. Got it. We don't even have to have the script ready for you to practice for and this And maybe movie. that it was just a tough audition then to have them do some of these scenes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, now that you say that. Yeah. Um, getting down to Lisa, she's played by Mackenzie Moss, Ripley Sobo, and Perla Hanny Jardine in that order of her different age groups throughout the film. I did read that Dakota Fanning was considered. I don't know which one. I don't know how old she was at the time, but I think it'd probably roughly be around the middle one. That's what I would get out of it. But yeah, but she obviously wasn't in it. Um, her mom, Chrisanne, was played by Katherine Waterson. Um, Andy Hertzfeld, I'm going to mess up this name, is played by Michael 
Starbug, is that how you say it? Uh, Stolbarg. Stolbarg, yeah. I didn't get to look at a lot of stuff he did, but those are your cast. Um, Kate Winslet has come on record saying this is one of not only her favorite roles she's played, but one of the favorite movies she was ever in, which I thought was kind of cool, like over Titanic and other stuff, you know? But yeah. So it, she liked it better than her other jobs? There you go. Uh. There's one. <laughs> um, so you got the cast production. This is where it gets really interesting, and please interject when you guys have your thoughts. This movie was actually shot in sequence, okay? So so the actor spent four weeks on each act. So if you divide it into, hey, Macintosh launch, next launch, and then the iMac launch, that's your three acts that they have that I'm talking about. The, actor, the actors would spend four weeks on each act, two weeks rehearsing the act. So basically, I watched this. They would actually like rehearse the entire scene, obviously with no cameras, nothing for two weeks. And Kate Winslet and Michael Fassbender said that they probably would not have been able to do this movie if they didn't have that rehearsal time because it almost allowed them to practice so much because of the long dialogue and all that. They would actually like set up where they were walking and go through it and through it and through it, which I thought was interesting. Um, Then they would take another two weeks to actually shoot it. And then after that, they would get a week off and then they would repeat the process for the whole three weeks. I mean, the whole three acts. Um, Kate Winslet had said by the end of the third act, though, Michael Fassbender wasn't even bringing his script anymore because he had rehearsed so much and basically memorized the entire script, all 180 pages. That's insane, huh? I mean, you can see it on screen, though. I mean, he yeah. owns it. I mean, he does yeah. a great yeah. job. Um, he also said that he studied film of Steve Jobs, especially like the launches, like how he was walking, how he, his mannerisms and all that stuff. I personally think that you see it in the third act, but this is because that's all of the Steve Jobs that I know. Yeah. I don't know how he was prior to that, but when he comes out in that black turtleneck, tell me you're like a Steve Jobs right there. Huh? He's got the short hair and the glasses. It looks yeah. just like. Yeah. Um, but going back to the acts, uh, the first act takes place in 1984. That's the launch of Macintosh. The second act in 1988, launch of Next, and the third in 1998. And uh, they basically decided to shoot all three differently. Now, Kerwin, help me out on this. When you see the first act in 1984, it's shot in 16 millimeter. Then they went to 1988, it was shot in 35 millimeter. And when they got to the 1998, it was shot in digital. So I'm, I'm, I mean, and that's why you see the different tones. They you wanted can, to you like. You can tell because when when they're in the 80s, there is a grain to everything. And there is on that first act, huh? yeah. And they wanted to hold that. Uh, according to Wikipedia, both Alan, I think his name's, how would you pronounce it? Is K U C H L E R? But it's I don't know. But he's a cinematographer. But anyways, according to him and Boyle, they wanted each of the film's three time periods to visually reflect Jobs' own development at that time. So I, now that I looked at it and when I rewatch this movie, you can definitely tell the third act is very clear and like vibrant, whereas like the first one is kind of dull, huh? Like with that, the green background. I, I don't know. I, I kind of like like it more now because of that. But Did you notice it the first time you watched no, it? No, I had no okay, idea. Me, I didn't notice yeah. it either until you were saying that. Now I kind of yeah. can see it. Um, but like I said, they, they did film this in the order that it started. In January 2015, um, they started in scenes um, that are not part of the acts, that are not on the, uh, the, the the launches, you know. That's where you see your dinner scene that he has with... Um, yeah. So there's all a bunch of them that they had to kind of fill in. And I think some of those were filmed prior, but then they started filming um, uh, the actual first scene, which you see, which is at Flint Center, De Anza College. That's where they actually did the first Macintosh launch, just like you saw. So they actually did film that there, and that was where the first Macintosh launch happened. And then later... Later on, and later that February, they filmed the second act at the Opera House. I don't know why they did that. I mean, I guess because of like, 
I guess he uses the opera because I don't think they had the second launch at that opera house. Mm-hmm. Did you? I mean, I don't know if you guys read anything about that, yeah. um, but that is in San Francisco. And then they filmed that third act that you see at the Civic Center, also in San Francisco. So they filmed a couple of the scenes prior to that. And then they did the acts, like I said, where they would do two weeks of rehearsal, two weeks of production, and then they would have a week off and start the next act all over again. Mm-hmm. This is where it's interesting. The editing, and see, tell me if you've ever heard of this. They did it differently. Like I said before, they would rehearse for two weeks and all that. And then usually editing is done after you guys do your production, right? You know, you have your pre-production. They would actually start editing each act while they were starting to film the second act. So while they were doing that pre-production, the director could work with the editor. So they were actually filming things before production was all done. Have you ever heard of that? I mean, that's kind of interesting to me. But is it because they were able to shoot this in order that allowed them to do it? I think I think that might be part of it, but like it's not unheard of for like the editing bay to be like so close by to like the set, or you might have like a, a smaller editing bay, like a portable one that you can really? you can edit on the I spot. I thought it was always done. Close, no, yeah, yeah. Usually it, it'll be done like you know you watch dailies or whatever. You got to cut those together sometimes. Yeah. So like sometimes like you can actually edit stuff on set depending on the type of production you're you're working on. But I guess there's like three very clear distinct acts. There are. Too. Yeah. So it's like I, I could see that you know them doing that and saving some time too. Yeah, you could yeah. look at it as like well, three episodes of a show. Yeah. But yeah. they said that that Fassbender would give them so many takes that they had so much footage that then it allowed the director and the editor to work, you know, during that time to get as much done and to see what they wanted to use and all that. Can you imagine doing that many takes with all that dialogue? No. Unless it's like one word per take, I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's insane. The editor's name was Elliot Graham. He did X2 and Milk, yeah, in this movie, yeah. I thought that was awesome. Um, But yeah, it's one of my treasures. I love the editing, and I'll get into certain scenes that I love. Um, So that's kind of like your movie, but one of the last things I wanted to get into was the music. Now, you guys said you didn't know the different cameras, or the the 16-millimeter, they also did the same thing with the music. So in the first act, what they wanted to do is do um, an analog synthesizer kind of tone, and they didn't want to get any synthesizer that was created after 1984. Mm. So it was all prior, so they have that tone. Keeping true to the time. When you yeah. get to the second act, it's more of the opera bass, which I got the connection of at the opera house, and he uses the whole, hey, I'm the conductor, you know, all that stuff. And then the third act um, is more digital, and what I found out is that they did all of that score actually on an iMac. <laughs> that was kind of cool. Oh wow! Yeah. That's so great. yeah, but uh, very interesting. But um, but they wanted to do the exact same thing, like the actual filming of it, and have its own like unique identity each three acts. So I, I appreciated it. I thought it was awesome. Mm. But uh, but yeah, that's the movie that you have, and uh, uh, pretty interesting on how they did it. I mean, I don't know if you guys' thoughts. It's not it's not your traditional way, but. And I, th- I thought it was cool. No, I thought it was pretty cool, too, because, like, it took me a while to notice when they're in, what, 1984. I was just kind of like, why does this movie... Like, I get we're in the 80s. Yeah. Most movies don't do this, but I was like, this looks like it was made in the 80s. Yeah. And, and now that you're explaining it, like, it, it makes a lot of sense. Like, so... I saw a couple things on Looper. Um, I don't know if I missed this. Did you talk about when Sony dropped Steve Jobs after two years. Did you touch on that? No, I didn't even know about that. Yeah, this is just straight from Looper, just something I saw. So I'm going to quote it. This is you know from Looper. It's called What Really Happened Behind the Scenes of Steve Jobs. So in November of 2014, Sony inexplicably dropped Steve Jobs after two years of development. It was another strange turn of events considering how quickly Sony bought the rights to the film in the first place. But all hope was not lost, according to Looper. It says, uh, a week after Sony backed out, uh, Universal picked up the, uh, the movie 
uh, and rebooted it. So the filming began again in 2015. So it looks like there were a lot of complaints from uh, Steve Jobs' widow. She, again, in the same article, talks about how she called every studio in Hollywood begging them not to make this movie. Really? They said, hey, you know, he passed away. You want to write a book? Write a book till the cows come home, but do not make a movie. So um, her objections really, I think, forced Sony into a corner, and that's why they dropped it. So I thought that she had a lot of objections about this movie if being you, made. If you look at, I guess, the comments of the actual people that this took place, they said that there's a lot of accuracy to it, but sometimes, and it's weird, sometimes they would say, Yes, I do think this is basically how he was, but others are saying that he wasn't this vicious. And so I'm wondering, but I don't know who to like believe, obviously, you know what I mean? But, but people have different takes on how they depicted him in the film. And I'm wondering if that's what she's like trying to talk about. Like, cause a lot of people say like, he wasn't like this, you know what I mean? I mean, but then somebody was like, no, he was like this. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you kind of got to look at it this way. Like, you know, we just did the last dance a couple months ago, right? Like. Steve Jobs is just that kind of dude where he's intense. Everything has to be done right. Everything, yeah. you know, we got to be consistent, uh, you know, keep it 100% all the way through. And like we spoke about, you know, even when you talk about like Kobe Bryant or Jimmy Butler or whatever, it's just like there are certain people whose intensity and whose drive is so high that other people are like intimidated or scared of it yeah. or, or just they just dislike that. And I think that if somebody's perception of him is that he's a complete asshole, it might not be that he's a complete asshole, but it might just be that he's just that intense and he demands that from you as well. Well, that, I mean, he, he doesn't write code. He's not inventing anything, but he was the guy that knew, hey, I need you to get to your best and produce the most best product that you can. So maybe you're right on that aspect, you know, where he just, that's what he did to get the, everything out of you. He you played know? the orchestra. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he did. Cause even when uh, they're talking about, um, oh, like Apple's gonna need next, uh, next, I can't even say Nexus, <laughs> Nexus OS. He doesn't say Apple's gonna buy my OS. He said, no, they're gonna buy that guy's OS that works for me they keep it consistent like he's playing the orchestra he knows he doesn't develop the os he knows the guy that works for him does and he said when they buy his os they're gonna hire me and i'm gonna bring him to apple with me so it's just like i don't know i, I just feel like it might have just been some people's perception of his intensity yeah. i guess and they do make him look super intense and imagine like she's just lost her husband too i don't know if she necessarily wants this movie to be about him in, in this kind of light i don't yeah. know how jobs was but this one kind of paints him in an interesting light yeah so last thing i want to say just because i thought this was pretty interesting on this on looper um i know when they have the issue with the pictures of the shark yeah i guess one of the images they did not ask the photographers uh for Permis his permission oh. so he wrote like this 27 page complaint about how they didn't ask for his permission but after seeing how it did at the box office, there, he's not really confident he'll get anything in return. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> images, but I just thought that was funny. But. Guys, you need to license your images and pay your photographers <laughs> and pay your artists. Pay them. But yeah, that's Steve Jobs. All right, cool. Moving on to our experience. Mugga, tell us your experience with this movie. So th this is an interesting experience. Probably one of my best experiences for a movie. Um, I have a friend, her name's Laura. She actually is an actor, um, nothing big. Her big credit is she's on an episode of Grey's Anatomy, but she did pay her SAG card and all that. And so because of that, when the SAG awards are coming around, she gets 
offers to like watch movies that aren't in theaters anymore, but you can, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. But also go to these screenings and you can kind of see the movie. And this was one of the movies that she was offered. She said, Hey, would you like to go? So we went on a Sunday morning down to Hollywood, um, watch this movie in a, in, a, in a gorgeous theater. I can't remember the name, but I didn't realize that afterwards they were going to have some of the cast come up and they would ask questions because you have all these actors, but they want to ask these actors actual questions of what they've gone through. So as the film is about to end, I'm looking to the left of me and there is Michael Fassbender and Kate Winslet. I'm just like, what the hell? And they went up to the front. We were about 10 rows back, but yeah, they just sat there and asked questions. So it was like the coolest experience ever. Like I got to actually watch this for free in an old Hollywood theater. And then those two showed up at the very end and were just like basically just questions of the filming and what they went through and all that. And I just thought it was like the coolest thing. I kept thinking, I was like, man, that girl was in Titanic. It's <laughs> like, Magneto, dude. Magneto too, yeah. But uh, but yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it. I didn't know much about the movie. I don't, do you guys, remember, I remember hearing the one about Steve Jobs and them getting, no, sorry, Jobs with Ashton Kutcher, but I don't ever remember seeing anything of like, hey, this is out in theaters coming, any previews, any trailers. So when she said we're going to go watch Steve Jobs, I had never heard of the movie at the time. It was weird. Yeah, I knew about the Ashton Kutcher movie, and then when I saw like that they were making the Michael Fassbender one, I was just like, dude, I was like, this dude just died, and we're already yeah. making fucking two movies about yeah. him. But yeah. then that was it. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, I mean, my experience, I'd never seen this movie before. Like, you had talked to us about it before, Muggs, um, and then like you kind of played us a scene. I, I forget which scene it was, but it was between uh, Seth Rogen and Michael Fassbender, and that was the only instance of the movie that I had seen. Um, and then um, for this podcast, um, just watch it on Netflix, like literally before I left to come over here. So nice. I, I seen it like maybe two hours ago. Nice. But yeah, that's my experience. Uh, Jason, what about you? Uh, so I had heard an interview with Seth Rogen. I was really curious to see. I, I didn't, him being in a movie like this that I knew was going to be more serious, I just thought was... Which uh, I thought he did a great job. I, yeah, yeah. I, was, I was pleasantly surprised. But just hearing him about, you know, not smoking any weed and being nervous around Aaron Sorkin, I was like, oh, that... That's that's pretty cool. He took it so seriously, and he talked about the amount of dialogue. But I had no idea. And then I think you showed it to me at your house, mugs. I think we I watched it there for the first time. It's crazy because the movie's like so simple, but you're blown away by the amount of dialogue, the delivery. Just uh, it's it's simple, and it's just these three acts. But it's so intense, and I don't know. I I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I think we just watched it on Netflix, and you might have had the movie. But yeah, n nothing nothing too crazy. I want to bring up one other um, experience that I had because I love this movie so much. Um, I then had my avid kids and I'm responsible for them of doing certain types of writings, you know, and one of them was they had to like tell a story and I asked and I got permission if they could write a screenplay, same concept. Um, so what I did was I printed out the first 30 pages of this screenplay and we read it and analyzed it and the kids like absolutely loved it because it is that intense when you read it and then that kind of transitions and hey, watch the scene. It was just the opening scene like and then, and then from there on they develop their own screenplay but it was it was a fun experience too to have that with like high school kids like they really enjoyed it you know but yeah, yeah. let's move on to uh what oh let's move on to trash and <laughs> yeah. we're doing a podcast right now currently sorry guys sorry guys <laughs> all right let's move on to trash and treasure uh mugga what is your trash and treasure with steve jobs um I'm really reaching when it comes to trash on this. Um, I think at the very, uh, the first act, you see him get upset about the Time Magazine and when he throws it down on the coffee table, his throw down is like the most unathletic thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> like, I don't know if he was trying to emulate Steve Jobs, but I, I just, I always laugh every time I see that. Um, he gets into a fight with Andy Hertzfeld at the very end, right, where he basically says, you know, I don't like you, you know, if it doesn't matter and so on. 
they do a quick, after he leaves the room and he's all frustrated, they do a quick flashback of Lisa and it kind of catches me off guard every time. And I don't understand why they would put a flashback of her, even though I know it's what they're talking about, but why would they put that in there right after he just got into it with Andy Hertzfield? Yeah, he almost like, not flinches, but yeah. he like does something weird. And, and then and they show, they show quickly, I think they show a picture of her and then also her Mac Lisa. paint drawing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, then anyways, um, the CGI graphics, why do they have to put that in? Like the, the, Space the space shuttle, the quotes of the po uh, the poem that he was reading at, on the ground. Like, did you see that there on the first? Like, why do they have to put that in? It's like it's so out of place. It doesn't need to be there. If the whole movie is styled like that, I'm cool with it. But, but it's it does not. It's it, like two times. Yeah, it's it's yeah. like you said, like the two quotes he's reading, and then uh, the other time where like the rockets going off when he's talking about the ship. Like, what's the point? Yeah, I'm just kind of like, but you don't you don't use that visual element of storytelling throughout the entire movie. I don't even think it's in the third act. Yeah, it's At only all. twice. Yeah. If they did it all three times yeah. or if it was a consistent thing, then okay. Then it's fine. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't like that. Me doing research about this, it kind of bums me out that like it didn't happen that day the way they're doing it. I mean, that it's not real. But I mean, that's just kind of reaching. But yeah, that's my trash. My treasure, I love the way he looked for the third act. Your traditional uh, black turtleneck. I don't know who was wearing those at that time, though. I, I thought those died in like the late 80s. But anyways, he had his black turtleneck with his jeans. Come to find out, though, that's not what he ever wore to a launch. He always wore a suit. He did wear those when he would like talk about things and all that. But I guess he never wore that. So it's kind of one of the historical inaccuracies I could say in the movie. Really? That, that's, and that, that's what I, but yeah, he, he not, not those three launches of the computer. It, but I think he did when he hit, it was like an iPod mm-hmm. uh, or the new iPhone or whatnot, but not those computers. He always wore a suit is what I read. Okay. Yeah. So that was different. Um, but I love the way uh, uh, Joanna and him like go together. You know, I, mean, I think their chemistry is awesome. But I love the one part though when he says this quote, coach lands on the runway the exact same time as first class. And I kind of because he's trying to like motivator like hey get on my level and I don't know what the hell he's talking about and she goes I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about I laugh every time she says that and I do like John Scully's one-liner in the first act where he says hey why don't you just try to relax he goes why he goes I don't know no one's ever asked me that you know (laughs) I thought that was funny every time I do it but in the more serious things there are two scenes that I look at it Um, the scene with Andy Hertzfeld at the very beginning where he talks about basically threatening him Go figure out a way to change the odds in your favor. He does the gun. And to me, it does a whole 360 pan around them. And I don't know, I just, the way that was, it's like, you're kind of like, this guy's a dick. You know what I mean? And like, he immediately sees the idea of the pocket and how you can put the disc in your pocket. And like, that's how his brain works. Not like you and I were like, wait a minute, quickly change it up. Look at this. We've got to, you know, show this. I thought that was amazing. Mm -hmm. But to me, the all time treasure of this film. And it's an editing, like just an editing classic is the scene with John Scully and him where they're fighting in the second act. You have them and they're arguing with each other and they incorporate them back before he was basically getting kicked off. And the way they're able, whether it's Sorkin, the directing or the editing, the way they're able to feed off each other. I remember being in theater just like, oh my God, it's so intense. But like not one gun is like drawn, you know, not one punch is thrown. It's just so, it's so amazing. It's like, how do you even do that? Like, I don't know if you guys can help me out of like, who's responsible for that success. Is it all three together or whatnot? I mean, it's just, it's an amazing scene, you know? I don't know. No, just, just, just intercutting the scenes. Like I think that's a great like uh, like a lot of a lot of people do that. But I think yeah. to to maintain that level of intensity across two separate conversations at two different points in yeah. time with 
the two same characters and maintain a consistent thread of dialogue throughout was, both of them. It was awesome. Yeah, I think yeah. it's really good, yeah. Yeah, so that's my all-time treasure for this movie. I think that was like the main thing, but but yeah, that's my trash and treasure. All right, uh, my trash and treasure, um, I will, I mean, I'm reaching too. Um, I do like the dialogue, but I do feel like sometimes it is so dense and so constant that it does feel like it's overpowering everything else. Yeah. Because like I like me, I love like quick, snappy, witty, smart dialogue. Like I, I love that more than anything because it keeps me engaged. And you know, like you said, like you don't need a gun or a punch thrown. Right. It keeps you engaged. But I feel like sometimes I'm just like, dude, like we just finished this conversation. We're going to another con like one second after the last word of a previous conversation is said, another conversation starts in the next room and I'm like, can we use other elements of storytelling from time to time. And I, I feel like we don't get that until the very last act, the very end of the movie where he's with the daughter, right. things finally come to a halt. But then I have to look at that and say, well, that's probably a storytelling device. Yeah. Things are so hectic and so dense and he's so focused on his work and he's so engrossed that he doesn't have time to sit and observe the people around him. And you know, if it's a storytelling device that's done intentionally, I'm cool with it. But there are some times where I'm just like, Jesus, like, yeah. slow the fuck down sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, we have conversations within conversations. We have a metaphor that's explained and is explained and explained within the conversation. I'm like, guys, like, you know, we all, we all took English class. Like, we don't need yeah. you to explain every single metaphor so literally. But, I mean, I love the dialogue, but sometimes, like, it's just so dense and intense. Like, I, I'm kind of, I get over it a little bit. But it's, it's not a complete trash. Um, and then, you know, everybody's performances are great. I love it. There's a point where Michael Fassbender says, everyone, everyone, everyone is waiting for the Mac. And I was like waiting for Return of the Mac to start playing. <laughs> <laughs> not gonna front. Um, and I, I love how um, like Steve Jobs is just obsessive about everything being perfect, not just with the product, but with the performance. And one thing that I do know, you know, is that Steve Jobs has always been a uh, champion of things being as intuitive and as user-friendly as possible. So um, when he's teaching, uh, you know, Lisa how to use the mouse, he's like, oh, you just take this and you click it. That was, you know, when he talks about the, um, what's the crappy tablet with the stylus they were talking about? The, the, Newton. the Newton. He says, you know, foreshadowing for the iPad, of course, but like the iPad was designed the way it was for ease of use. Same with the iPhone. There's one button because we want to keep things easy. And like his, like Steve Jobs' whole thing has been about intuitiveness and ease of use. Like you have the magic mouse for your Mac, you know, that, that does so many things and keeps it simple. And a lot of people have said that since Steve Jobs has passed away, that Apple has kind of, you know, gone away from that, really? that intuitiveness. Yeah. Like things are, things that take you, you know, one to two buttons on an Android, take you five or six on an Apple. Don't tell Jose that, cause yeah. he'll talk a lot of shit. But, <laughs> but I do appreciate that they show that. Things I think they do a great job when he explains, if I want to say there's a spot on his shirt, I point to the spot. Not it's, you know, I think they do a great job of that analyzation, mm -hmm. but yeah. yeah. And, and also when he talks about the disc in the shirt, you know, something as simple as that that nobody would pay attention to, that's perfect. Like, yeah, this disc holds a lot of stuff, but the fact that I can put it in my shirt pocket makes it even more user-friendly. Yeah. So I, I love those little, uh, you know, a little attention to details. Um, I, I do like kind of going back to what my trash was, but I do like that um, they do take the intensity of that dialogue and they use that as a way to show how hectic and confrontational and, and just how disconnected he is from the, the people and the emotions that are around him, you know, being so obsessed with his product launches, et cetera. I'm glad that um, over the course of this movie, this genius 
who always has to be right, you know, by the end of the movie comes to learn that he has to be a better dad. He hasn't always been the better dad. Like he has to realize that, you know, he he's forced to realize that the time cover was never about any kind of beef or bad blood. It was literally like a deadline problem. Like they couldn't, they they had to do that ahead of time. They didn't yeah. know, and he was never even in the running for for a man of the year. So how could they yeah. possibly get him? Also, um, when Seth Rogen tells him, you know, hey, you can be gifted and decent at the same time. Like you don't have to be selfish. Like just just acknowledge the people that that yeah. worked. Like the the product they made gave you enough time and money to do what you want to, to do, do what you want to do. How hard is it to acknowledge these people? Um, and he has to realize when he has that conversation with uh, Jeff Daniels that not everybody is at war with him. Like when Jeff Daniels says like, dude, like everybody thinks I fired you. You put yourself in a situation where we had to let you go. And I was trying not to get rid of you, yeah. you know? And, and it's not until the end that uh, Steve Jobs realizes that like not everything has to be a confrontation. You know what I'm saying? And um, you know, my last, my last treasure, um, you know, the, the moments with the daughter, he spent this whole movie um, at these, you know, three different um, launches or whatever, right? right? And he's dealing with this hectic situations and everybody's trying to get his attention and everybody's having an argument with him or he's having an argument with everybody and we keep hearing like you're gonna be late we always start on time we don't want to be late we don't we we always have to start on time and finally once he just hits this brick wall of everybody showing him like hey dude like not everything has to he ain't gotta have beef with everybody he finally goes out with his daughter and his daughter's like you better go inside you're gonna be late and he's just like i don't care yeah. Like he finally has that. It's like he finally got it. He finally got yeah. it. Like be be a fucking human. You know what I'm saying? And I think one of the the best shots, or not maybe not the best shot, but like um, one of the the great moments in this movie is that like, you know, he's on stage, the presentation's already going on, and he decides to walk off stage towards his daughter. Yeah. And I think I think that's that's his character arc in this movie. You know what I'm saying? Like over the course of these three launches, to go from this product obsessed genius you know persona he gets a little more human towards the end yeah you know like he's he's still not the best dad not the best friend co-worker but like he's made some progress over the course of that last right. product launch but um overall um that's my trash and treasure uh jason what about you you guys touched on a lot of what i was going to talk about but for my trash um I just think he's such a dick to his ex and, and his daughter, man. I just, it's hard to watch some of the stuff and listen to what he says, just saying how she's not my daughter. And it's like, she's right in the room or she's right outside the room. And it's like, I, I, I can't even understand that thought process. Like, I understand like maybe it wasn't a planned pregnancy or whatever, whatever happened. They don't dive real deep into it, but you could just tell he's like doing, you know, these algorithms and math equations to prove that there's a possibility, maybe somewhere, some chance that she's not his daughter. And it's just like fuck dude like yeah. chill the fuck out it's it's uncomfortable a little bit like the first time you watch it i hate that he's such a dick to wozniak and the apple II team it's just you see seth rogan there he does such a good job he's like dude what the fuck is wrong with you like we have this product it's been what's sustaining apple for the last seven years we made it the way i wanted to make it and you this is the one thing you allowed me to make what i wanted to make with all these like ports and everything that he wanted and that's why he's doing so well and it's keeping apple alive and it's just like and I get it. He's like trying to focus on the now and the future, not the past. But it's just like, again, just the way he and I'm curious to know how accurate this is. But it's just like, God, if this was his boss or his partner and it's just like he's just shitting on him. It's just like, yeah, he gives him a free pass and doesn't fire him at the end. But it's like, fuck, dude, he just shits all over him. 
Um, one Don't you love though that how he calls him out on that? He goes, "Do you know how condescending that sounds? Mm-hmm. I get a free pass." You know, I yeah. I love that he like bullies up to him and calls him out in that second that, part. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, even the third act. The third act, he really yeah. goes at him too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is uh, this is a trash list that I don't understand. Why I'm asking you guys because I really don't know. Why does Michael Fassbender put his feet in the toilet? He does that in real life. Why? Why? I don't, I don't know. I, I just know that that's what they put in there. He actually would do that. What? Yeah. Because he seems... And Fassbender actually asked to have that in the actual movie because he would actually do that. I mean, the way they portray him, again, I don't know Steve Jobs from the next person, but like the way they portray him, he seems almost OCD-ish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you're putting... And this is not his own house. This is not like something for your feet. It's like this random public restroom that you're putting your feet in. You don't know if the last person flushed all the way, if there's like poo particles, like, yeah. I, I just, I'm like watching that and every time I'm just like, what the fuck is he doing? Is he like really hot and that cools him off? But did it's he, like, did he dry his feet? I don't think. Yeah, he did. He, he did? did? He okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's when he's explaining to her that he knows people and he's going to, he can make a phone call and someone will be there to say it's done. Oh. And then, oh, you're dead. You know? Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, I think you touched on this, the scene in the third act with Andy Hertzfeld when he talks about paying for Lisa's tuition. It just, again, just portrays uh, Steve Jobs just such a dick again in this scene. It's a good scene. It's just like, God, man, he's just such a piece of shit in some of these scenes. And then my last trash is just like, so like, Kerwin, you were touching on this as part of your treasure, just like you, you see him walking towards Lisa at the end, like off stage, And yeah, he had this painting from when she was a child. But it's like, it almost leaves us feeling like, oh, maybe he's not that bad of a guy. And it's like, no, he's a dick. He's a fucking dick. <laughs> and God knows what's going to happen when he, right after his presentation, he takes two steps off the fucking stage. Like, he's probably still going to be an asshole. Yeah. But it's like, they had the music, the feel-good music going on, and she's smiling, and he's smiling. Like, oh, I kept this painting. Like, do you remember what you painted? No, well, I do. And it's like, he hasn't. It's like, oh, it's great. But it's like, what about the 10 tons of shit you put my mom through and me through? And weren't you just complaining that... I didn't stand up when my mom sold her house. Like, what is a 19-year-old girl supposed to do after you just cut off her tuition for Harvard? Mm-hmm. Like, she's panicking. Her mom's to sell the house. It's like, yeah, that, yeah, that's, again, another problem. Like, I guess do it. Like, I don't know. It's just like, I'm, I'm not walking away from the movie at the end thinking like, oh, you know, maybe he's not that bad of a guy. I don't know. I'm not feeling that. And I don't know if that's what they're going for, but I hope no one felt that. I think that's what they're... Go- I never felt like he was automatically absolved of all that what i felt was like he finally got it and now he can take the steps to do better becoming a better person. yeah i don't i don't think he's immediately better i think like something clicked finally that's all i think but we see that three times through the movie mm-hmm. one where she does the original paint program on the mac mm-hmm. he he like softens for a second because he's impressed that she not impressed but like he's like oh wow you use this and like it's so awesome. You open this up and like he goes quiet. You could tell he softens a second. I think the sec the, in the second act is um, when she's listening to the music, hmm. and right before she leaves, she runs back to him and says, "I, I want to come live with you" or whatever, and hugs him. And it's like you can see him soften for a half a second, mm-hmm. and then you see that part where he softens for half a second. But it's like you have to bulldoze through shit that he just constantly gives her to get to that, and it's like. I guess, but I don't know. I, I just, I wonder if people left that scene thinking like, oh, you know, maybe. I will say this though. I don't think that he was impressed with the picture that she made on the Mac. I think because of his um, so user-centric 
way of thinking, maybe a intuitive, user intuitive way of thinking about product. I think that he was more impressed that his product worked so well and was so intuitive that a child could use it. Yeah. And I think in that moment, he's more impressed with the computer. He doesn't give a fuck about this girl. He's just yeah. like, look, a kid used my product without, with hardly any instruction. This product is great. He doesn't give a fuck about this kid. And then the second time, like he's, you know, he's having that argument with the girl, with Lisa, over the measurements of, you know, oh, of, yeah. the, of cube. Uh, the cube or whatever. And he's just like arguing back and forth. And I'm like, you are probably 40 years old, arguing with a like a, a 11 or 13 year old, like just give it up. But he's so focused on his product being yeah. what it wants to be. And then finally at the end, they have another product related discussion where he's just like, oh, I'll put music in your pocket because kids love music. That's the way you gotta yeah. rope them in. But I think that goes back to what Kate Winslet's character said, like talk about something they like to, mm. to kind of be with them because their last conversation in the previous act that was somewhat wholesome, was talking about music. Yeah. And I think that was his way of kind of, instead of being told to talk to her, like Kate Winslet made him talk to her, like he kind of actually reached out for once and said, hey, I'm, I'm trying to connect genuinely. And no, I agree with you 100%. Like he fucked up a lot based on this movie. But I think what they're trying to show is just like, he's taking that first step to not being a complete pile of shit. Well, we hope. Yeah. Um, we I, hope I looked it happened. up though, but it did say that... Uh, he did the bull thing to calm him down. Oh, the toilet bowl? Yeah. I don't know how that would... I don't, I've never wanted to be like, I just want to go stick my feet in a toilet to call cool off. Yeah, I've never done that. I don't know. That's what they said. Like, he would actually do that. There are swimming pools, puddles, <laughs> yeah. like water bottles, like... The sink, man. Even the fucking sink. Yeah, just uh, lift your foot up and <laughs> splish splash. Yeah. Take a whole bath. Um, so, that, that's all for my trash. My treasures, I mean... I like the score. I thought I thought it, it fit the movie. Now knowing that it was, are you gonna watch it again to kind of? Yeah, yeah, I want to watch okay. it again now. Uh, of course, you guys. I mean, the cast is. I think they did a great job seeing Kate Winslet. I mean, I don't know if that'd be my first choice, but she knocked it out of the park. She yeah. did a great job. Mm-hmm. I liked all the flashbacks, like you guys were talking about earlier, just going back to like Jeff Daniels and Michael Fassbender having the dinner the initial time when he asked him to be the CEO of Apple. I liked when they had, and you were talking about mugs and that, that boardroom meeting. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's so intense. I, I, I enjoyed the, the, flash, the flashbacks. Uh, Jeff Daniels did great. Um, the, the scene when he, in the second act with the next, and it has like just half yes. his face. Yeah. And it's like his eyes are closed and they show the other half of his face and his eyes open or something like that. But it's like the, the way they shoot that, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, Steve Wozniak's cathode tube watch. Yeah. It was goofy, but it was so funny. You just see Seth Rogen get so excited that he's asking about it. And then I just love where he like, he's like, well, what if you're traveling and you got to change the, you know, you got to go ahead now. Or he's like, well, wait a second. He starts unscrewing and pulls this thing out of his pocket. He's like, oh, uh, man, we have me. Yeah. flight attendant. He has a bomb over here. He's like, you think it looks like a bomb? He's like, yes. And Muggs, you touched on this. Just He looks so much like Steve Jobs at the end. The Steve Jobs, at least we know. I don't know him from before that time. I didn't pay attention, I guess. The final exchange between Steve Jobs and Wozniak, I thought that was really good. And then the, the style, my last treasure is that stylus line yeah. that he uses. He's like, do you, know, want, you want to know why I killed a Newton? He's like, the stylus. He's like, because when you're holding the stylus, you can't use the other five that are attached to your hand or something like that. And I was it's amazing like, how you think of it that way, huh? But it kind of goes back to that floppy disk thing, too. Yeah. It's just like he just... He knows, like, he may not know the ins and outs, like Wozniak knows with the computers, but he knows, like, the marketing 
and making it so intuitive and easy and like I mean that's why those products just took off after you know all that time and they hired him back to CEO but yeah that's my trash and treasure cool. all right cool so let's move on to our ticket prices uh Mugga how much are you paying to watch this movie I, I really like this movie and I think it's amazing I mean I'm glad it was nominated for certain awards um uh, I didn't win at the academy I think it won at some other categories but regardless I looked, I was in between 15 and 20, you know, because I really do think this is a movie, again, like I showed my avid kids it, they loved it when they were in high school, this is high school students, I love it, and I can give it to my parents, so a lot of generations can look at this movie, you know, and I can kind of relate to it as well, like when they put the new note, I was like, yeah, but one fact is that when they gave him the projections that you're going to sell, a mil- whatever the projection was, you know, he said, but all these people are also going to be first time computer buyers, that was me, I was, my first computer was an iMac, you know what I mean, but uh um, I just, the fact that it's not real kind of discourages me the way they made it. And I don't know if I can give it a 20. So I'm going to go a solid 15. I think I'm going to do a solid 15. I wanted to, but I think the more research I did, I, I went down because I think I would have given it a 20 if I didn't do research on it. Mm. But yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I was hovering between a 10 and a 15, but I think I'm going to go like a solid 15 as well. Um, I think that the dialogue can be very distracting as well written as it is i think it it leaps like above and beyond everything else happening on screen to the point where it becomes distracting and it's just like even though i'm watching a movie i literally cannot pay attention to the performances and all that other stuff because i'm trying so hard to keep up with the dialogue you gotta watch it more than once i think yeah yeah yeah, I, i definitely caught everything but i'm just like i'm like dude like aaron sorkin like just fall back a little bit like let the actors kind of portray whatever it is they need to feel and I feel like the dialogue is trying so hard to be the star that we can't even let them like perform luckily these are great actors and their performance can blow through all that but like there, there's just some points in the movie where I'm just like can we please can we just please stop let's just rest for a second with, with yeah. the heavy fucking dialogue 24-7 but I mean that that's my main deal and it's not even that big of a trash so I mean, and and I've seen you know better dramas that are that have different styles added to them, but you know I'll give it a fifteen. I'll give it a fifteen. It's it's really really good. Uh, Jason, how about you? Yeah, I'm gonna go fifteen as well. Just I mean, kind of piggybacking off what you're saying, like I like all the dialogue. It's super intense, but it's not one of those movies where like oh I want to go back and watch it again. It's like no, I need to go. I need to go back and watch it again yeah. because there's even I watched again last night and there was a couple lines that I'd never heard because either like I checked out for a second or like my brain needed to rest or whatever but I was like there's so much dialogue and I feel like trying to talk about Bling's four pillars but like (laughs) I mean yes I want to watch it again but I like I said I needed to watch again just to absorb some of you know what else was going on to hear all of the dialogue it's so dense and I'm not I'm not opposed to it I, I enjoy the movie I would watch it again just because I do like it but um, yeah I think I have to go 15 on it so can we compare this real quick because I know this is kind of a short one so we, would you give barring some research but would you give um, a few good men 20 because to me there's a lot of dialogue on that and I'm wondering what because I would give a few good men 20 is it because he saves for that climatic dialogue at the very end and there are things in between it? I, I'm just wondering, like, why? Why I, I don't know, because they're both Aaron Sorkin and, or The Social Network, you know? I think it, the problem with this movie, or, I mean, I look at it as, as a problem. It's not a huge problem, but I think the problem with this movie 
is that the dialogue is the star of this movie and nobody else is the star of this movie. Really? That I think yeah. that's I think that's the problem. It's like sometimes the dialogue can be so much and so dense and every line is a one-liner in this movie. Like yeah. like when I said like, oh, we got to set up the metaphor, then we got to explain the metaphor, then we got to intersect the conversation to connect to this conversation and then then we get to the resolution where the metaphors literally explain to you the audience and I'm like we fucking get it. Like like the whole orchestra thing, we didn't like we're literally in, in an orchestra pit and I'm yeah. just like guys we fucking get it <laughs> yeah. like we we get it like we don't we don't need the metaphor spelled out for us and I'm just like like this movie focuses so much on letting the dialogue be the star I I got to give props to the actors for managing to fucking get a performance through it all cuz I'm just like cuz after a while every character sounds the same at some point yeah. because because the dialogue is just so fast and so snappy that like I can't tell the difference between which character because the the delivery at some point becomes entirely the same for everybody yeah. at certain points during the movie like even with the little kid when they're arguing about the the cube right. I'm just like Jesus like she's fucking like 9 or 10 and like she's fucking communicating the same way, you know, his secretary or one of the other guys would, or he is like, it's the same cadence, same tone, same means of delivery, same type of delivery. And I'm just like, I, I need some differentiation between performances, but because the dialogue is so much the star of this, everybody succumbs to the dialogue's will. Yeah. And I think because outside of a couple flashbacks, you literally have just these three acts. Yeah. Whereas a few good men, you have this whole story and this right. build up and yeah. Um, same as social dilemma. I mean, social uh, network. network. Yeah. Yeah. So same kind of thing there. I mean, it's like they focus on those deliberation room scenes a lot, but you have this whole other story being told at different places and different interactions. And um, I know there's a lot of dialogue in both those two, but something about this just being those three acts minus a couple flashbacks. I think just how dense the dialogue is. It just it's overwhelming. Yeah. It's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Well, we are given this fifteen dollars. Okay. Cool. Uh, so uh, let's get to the uh, most important question. Um, we got an actor out there who needs a job. <laughs> he does. Should he be in Steve Jobs? And that actor is uh, Tom Cruise. So if Tom Cruise is in this movie, who would he be? Well, Aaron Sorkin wanted him to play Steve Jobs. So I kind of think that's the obvious choice. I don't even want to say John Scully, though, because I did read um, an interview that the actual John Coley Sorry, the actual John Scully said he loved the way Jeff Daniels portrayed him. He said it was pretty much spot on. I don't even know, like, if, if it has to, if he has to be in this movie, I would go Steve Jobs. But I still think Fassbender did great. But yeah, it can't be Wozniak. You know what I mean? No. He can't be. He can't be the GQ. I mean, he could be the Cube. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, he could be the little kid, I guess. <laughs> Same height. He, he could be the reporter, the reporter that Joel, yeah, from GQ Joel. Magazine. Yeah, oh, he could just be that one. guy. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say Hertzfeld, but I don't think he could do that either. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he probably could have done Michael Fassbender. He could have done it. Yeah, he probably could have done it. Yeah. It's Tom Cruise, man. Come on. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't want to take any anything away from Magneto, but I think like <laughs> I think uh, Tom Cruise probably could have done the Steve Jobs role. Yeah, yeah Fassbender's pretty magnetic on this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. Uh, Anything else, guys? That's it, man. All right, so in the words of Tom Cruise... Fuck you, Sally. Thanks for listening to this episode of $20 Ticket. Follow us on Instagram at $20 Ticket and leave your ticket price about the movies we've reviewed. If you have any comments or suggestions, send them to $20ticket at gmail.com. That's two zero, the numbers, $20ticket at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, and thank you for listening.
Um, but those are your two main actors. But then you have the other ones, um, Jeff Bridges being one playing uh, John Scully. What do you guys think of his Jeff performance? Jeff Daniels. What did I say? Bridges. Why did I say Bridges? Oh, dude, I looked at my notes and yeah. I was like, oh, shit, I hope I got that right. I had to go back. All right, let me start this over. The two quotes he's reading to Jeff Bridges, or... Er, <laughs> Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Jeff Daniels. Yeah. Jeff Daniels, my bad. 